Theodore Roosevelt explored uncharted Amazon territory, helped modernize American football, and won a Nobel Peace Prize. I'm Erin McCarthy, editor-in-chief of Mental Floss and the host of History Versus, a new podcast that shares the inside stories behind some of history's ultimate fighters. Season one tackles Theodore Roosevelt, who went head-to-head with seemingly unbeatable foes like corruption, time, and death itself. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Katie. So it's Saturday morning in Los Angeles, and I must confess, I was a little tired when I woke up this morning because Stand Up to Cancer was yesterday, and we had a fun after party, and I was basking in the afterglow of raising lots of money for cancer research. You know, as our guest would say, you were like the Beyonce of that party. <laughs> no, I wasn't. You were. Everybody was coming up to you, and they weren't asking for autographs, but they were asking for selfies. Not really, Brian. I think it was because there weren't many celebrities at the after party. I don't <laughs> think so. I think everyone is very proud of you, because without you, this would not have happened. It's been well, going on now for 10 years. You've raised half a billion dollars for cancer research. And more than that, you've really helped to revolutionize the way cancer research is done. Well, we're trying, and I have to give credit where credit is due. It takes a village. There were nine of us in all who started this organization, and of course, a cast of thousands behind the show last night. So I'm glad you were there, Brian. Thank you for my, my incredible seat, I by know, the way. I know. Brian had a front row seat with my really close friend, Wendy, and her, her boy toy, Randy. Can you have a boy <laughs> toy when you're in your 60s? And my daughter... Uh, Ellie was there with her boyfriend, Mark, and my niece, Laura. So it was a very special night for me. Thank you for coming, and thank you for supporting Stand Up to Cancer, Brian. And for any of you out there who watched and have supported this effort, thanks to you as well. So I thought I was going to be pretty, pretty, pretty tired, as Larry David would say, this morning. But that changed in a nanosecond when I met this young man named Jonathan Van Ness. And he's the star of a new Netflix show called Queer Eye. Well, actually, it's not quite a new show. It's a reboot of a show that aired from 2003 to 2007 and on it's Bravo. In its, that's right. It, it's in its second season as well. But however you describe it, it is a monster hit. And after spending just an hour with JVN, as my daughter calls him, I can understand why he is absolutely ebullient. And I don't know, I I wanted to say I'll have what he's having because the guy has more, so much energy. He makes me feel like I'm on Valium. He is a uniquely enthusiastic (laughs) character, but very authentic to who he is. And by the way, highly intelligent, clearly incredibly well-read, very engaged, and has a lot of smart, informed opinions. We should say for people who don't watch the show that Queer Eye The premise is basically that these five gay guys travel to various places and they make over somebody. It used to be just a straight guy and now it can be anyone. It can be a straight woman. It can be a trans trans person. Um, And they do more than the hair and the makeup in the house. They really help the person to kind of reexamine their lives and think about their priorities in a new way. It's it's much deeper than just a kind of a makeover show. Definitely. And in many ways, I think why this show has resonated so much at a time of huge divisions in this country, it is really, I think, bridging the cultural divide and showing what we all have in common 
rather than what is tearing us apart. And how refreshing is that? Yeah. Very is the answer. (laughs) Yes, very, very. So we talked with Jonathan about everything from what it was like growing up in a small town, Quincy, Illinois, where he was the only male cheerleader, to the experience of filming Queer Eye in some very conservative places in Georgia, to his hit podcast, which is called Getting Curious. We also asked Jonathan for a few makeover suggestions for Brian's spoiler alert. I'm perfect. (laughs) He didn't have too many. But enough about us people. Let's get back to our guest, JVN or Jonathan Van Ness, one of the shining stars of Queer Eye, one of my new favorite shows. So hold on to your hats, people. This is going to be a doozy. It Should does? I call you Jonathan or JVN? John, you can do Jonathan. Well, obviously. Or JVN. If it, you can honestly, either one of those, I don't care. They're my both daughter gorgeous. calls you JVN. She I does. think I'm going to call you Jonathan. She's <sighs> such a fan and absolutely adores you. And she and her boyfriend watched the episode with Tom, you know, in uh, Georgia. Yes. I guess so many of them are in Georgia. But yeah. what, the first episode. Yeah, they all are. And they had they had the eye mask on that oh, you recommended. Honey. And they were watching it wearing the eye mask. I love that. You know, and ice, like, ice is such an underrated beauty tool. It really is. She's so anti-inflammatory, and she's so affordable, which is great. You know? No, I'm asking, you, man. No, just, like, literal ice. ice. in general. Literal ice. Any yes. Kind of ice. You know what yes. I've gotten into recently? Is? A cold rinse at the end of the shower. Oh, it's great. It's oh, good for you your skin. Where have you been? I, I don't know. I always did that. It's, it's also trick. good for your hair and your hair follicles, yep. right? Yeah, well, it seals down your cuticle, so it makes it more shiny. I didn't know yeah. about this. Increases blood flow. It was well, a little shocking at first, but well, now I kind of like it. And we it have cools gorgeous me down. skin, honey. Oh, oh, well, my God. Thank you very <laughs> We're going to talk about Brian in a minute. Oh, but I first, I want, want to get to that first question. When you were growing up in Quincy, Illinois, what was your first inkling that, you know what? I'm gay, and I'm cool with that. Gorgeous question. I think it was, it must have been a Bowflex commercial or like, it must have been like an infomercial. <laughs> really? I, I, yes. I remember being like, I remember seeing like an infomercial that was like for a Bowflex or a Bowflex like machine. And my mom was in the room and I was like, mom, um, when am I going to get abdominals like that? Cause like they, like, I just, I loved an abdominal honey. I was like, what is going on with and that? And you weren't looking at Christy Brinkley. You I wasn't looking at, at Christy Brinkley. Mom. Yes. I was yeah. like this, this, all this muscle honey. And, and I, I don't know if I was Cool. But that could have just indicated sort of vanity, not necessarily sex. You know. Sexual oh no, I was no, I was like, mm, I was like curious about that. I was like, mm, I'm curious. And then I also feel like I, I was pretty clear by like kindergarten that like I was obsessed with Miss Universe. I wanted to watch Miss America. Like I was like the like there was this like really cute girl on Barney that had this little fringe. I was obsessed with her fringe. But then the other little boys that I was in kindergarten with, like I definitely just wanted to like push them down and then like run away, and be like. Oh. <laughs> you know, you were so, the youngest of four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 how did your parents react to your gayness um, early on? Uh, I think my dad was very, very troubled by it. Very, very worried by it. Like, I would play a lot of dress up with my cousins at their house. And I remember him, like, walking in on me in this, like, fierce velvet evening gown with, like, a big puffy gold sleeve. And he, like, had a literal, like, nervous break. Like, he was, like, like it was... How old were you at this I was, like, five. Yeah, I mean, it was, like, and then I couldn't play dress-up after that. But then, like, my aunt would, like, kind of still, like, sneak me to play dress-up. But we really had to, like, cushion the potential arrival times of my dad. You know, nothing too extravagant if I really need to, like, get out of it in a hurry. So Um, did that make you feel shame? Absolutely. As a as a little boy, for sure, a hundred percent. But then, how did you how did you deal with that? Well, Obviously, your I, aunt was a big factor. Yeah, yes. no, my aunt my aunt Lisa's amazing. Um, my mom was amazing, and and even my dad was amazing. I think that because also I think one thing that 
you have to remember about the early 90s, late 80s, having a flamboyantly gay son, there was obviously a lot of fear of like HIV AIDS. Like no one knew like what that disease was going to grow into, like what was really going on with it at the time. And so I remember in a very young age, my dad being like, like he was so worried about HIV AIDS. But like by the time I was like, you know, like 11 or like 12, like very, like there's so much fear on that. I mean, people had been seeing people like just dropping like flies. It was like literally an epidemic, like in this country, like in front of people's faces. So I think that it- That's actually an important thing to point out. You know, I was thinking about like all the attention, even though it wasn't because he was gay, but remember Ryan White. Yes, was Ryan White funding. Of- He's so influential with-, with um, and uh, Magic Johnson, yeah, was also in the but early Ryan 90s, White yeah. specifically did so much to raise awareness and funding. Because I mean, one thing that re- that people really don't realize, and this is insane: Ronald Reagan was the president in this country for eight years, and over a hundred thousand people died. Americans died before he even uttered HIV/AIDS, which wasn't until 1987. And then this current president eulogizes this president, and and all these people think that you know Ronald Reagan was this like amazing man. He presided over one of the most intense. I mean, the worst health epidemic in this country's history, and because of the people that were being affected by it, did not move a muscle. And in 2018, an entire party still looks back at him as he is like he's the model of a good president. I cannot think of two people who are more falsely looked up to than the Reagans. Really, really, really bad. Do you think he did anything that was admirable at all? Um, You know, maybe like economically people can make a case for that. But I think, you know, especially when you think of their relationship that they had with – um. Rock Hudson, or was it Rock Hudson? Rock that, Hudson, that whole thing, too. and that personal plea to Nancy Reagan, and she like, I mean, it's really very heartless, like how they treated a, a whole gay community of people that were dying before people's eyes and being very vocal about it. And I mean, they really his administration like worked tirelessly against HIV research. It's interesting that there wasn't actually even more outrage on the part of the media. Yeah. Toward the Reagans for and not even recognizing now, it. Like as me as a gay man, as a 31-year-old gay man, every time I have to hear a Republican senator or or the president or anyone really praise the Trump administration, I think that's one thing that we really look over is what what his administration did to this country and what his administration did to the health of this country. You mean the Reagan administration. Yes. It's yeah. so yes. interesting as people deify Ronald Reagan. It's not as good though, word. <laughs> it's not as though they didn't know. Because Ronald and Nancy Reagan, of course, lived in L.A. And yes. had lots of gay friends. Yes. And a number of people Nancy Reagan was close to were actually dying yes. of this illness. And, but wasn't, and, she, wasn't she influential, though, in getting her husband to recognize AIDS? I mean, finally? Maybe or she not? was, but I, I still don't think know. that— it, I actually don't know. That's a subject of some debate and controversy. And even if she was, that wasn't until, like, 87— like, this was going on in America by, like, 81. It was, like, a known thing where he was president. I know that you've gotten very political, or perhaps you've yeah, always been has. very well, political. I always have. I come no, from a broadcasting is, family. No, which is great. And we're going to talk about the current state of affairs in a moment. But I just had I, to light the Reagans to, on fire first. <laughs> I, just, I, I just want to talk to you first about sort of – so growing up, so you're, you said eventually your dad was very accepting. Mm-hmm. But you never really, quote, unquote, came out. You were sort of – Always out. Yeah. Yeah, I never – well, I think I started answering yes to the question by the time I was in, like, fifth, sixth grade. And what was that like? Because, again, this was way before there were LGBTQ clubs Mm -hmm. in high schools Mm -hmm. all across America that – this generation were, is incredibly open, so that must have been really hard. There were. There was a lot of, like, really terrifying moments. Like, Matthew Shepard was a time when I was really, really— I, very... I know the Shepherds very well, and I covered that story. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, when Matthew Shepard was killed— And should we just mention, for people who don't remember, Matthew Shepard was a young 
gay man in Wyoming who was, was brutally murdered, brutally murdered, beaten to death, and strung up like a scarecrow. And it was and lured out of like like he, he it was really like he was lured into the situation. It was it was really one of the most evil, craven, disgusting yeah. acts. Yeah. It's and when I learned the phrase hate crime. Yes. Actually, that's when it sort of infected. Exactly. But people would say to me as a you know that was in 1997, so I was 10. By the time I was in like sixth and seventh grade, like that was a very common thing to be like you know you just like you deserve to be Matthew Shepherded. Like that was the thing that people would type. That was the people that people would say. Like, th- he was used as like a- People to- would say that out loud to mm-hmm. you? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't take like five steps in junior high school without someone like, you know, just saying faggot, screaming faggot, putting their hands on me. Yeah. I mean, it was like very, very scary, but I always had like a, a really tight circle of friends. I was going to say, you must have, on the other hand- been incredibly popular because you're so charismatic popular and in the fun. sense that everyone knew me because I stuck out like a sore thumb. But I had like four friends. And, and what, how were, did your what were si- those friends like? Always like amazing personalities, like very supportive. Very like uh, my best friend Emily I was really close with her in sixth grade. I still post about her a lot. We do stand up together. She was really important to me growing up. Um, she was probably the most important person to be growing up. Actually, so were they quote unquote outcasts like you? No, my friends always had like a way of like. I had this other friend Kim who was like the prettiest girl. Like she was like the prettiest girl in junior high and high school. And so Thank we God were really for Kim. Yes, yeah, so we were good friends. So she kind of, like she was kind of in there, and like Emily was kind of in there, and also. People who used to not make fun of me used to, I remember being called stuck up a lot in in junior high and high school. And I think that's because I had such a, like my chest was always out. Like my chin was always, yeah, like my chin was always up. Like I, I think I've always been able to master the art of like faking it till you make it. Like even if you are not feeling it, like I can at least convince like other people that I am. I really admire the fact that you just, like, embraced who you were at a very young age when people are so insecure and doubting themselves and kind of figuring themselves out. You were the only male cheerleader Uh at your high school, and you were kind of loud and proud about it. Yeah. And I I didn't have another way. How did this confidence survive all of the bullying and insults? I mean, I think if I were in your shoes, it would have just— I don't know whether it would have literally killed me, but I would have been certainly very insecure. I'm a very passionate person. So like the Today Show, for instance, every morning, like there was like little pockets of joy that I was just like obsessed with. Like I love the news. I love to read. I love Pop-Tarts. I love powdered donuts. I love figure skating. I love gymnastics. I love to read. Like there's just so many things that I love to do with my time that like I also in eighth grade, I made this like huge post-it countdown thing with like the number of days so I would graduate high school based on if I graduated in my senior year, which I ended up graduating a year early. So I always knew that like eventually I would get out of there and like it would be it would be better. You, you knew it gets better before mm-hmm. they did the campaign. It yes, gets better. Yes, I was like, you just got to get out of here, girl. Just and like, it must have been your parents too, helping you kind of. Definitely my mom. Like my mom, like is you know, I think we had like a lot of very like you know strained times as a teenager, but she definitely like has always been supportive and given me like given me the room to be myself. You know. Yeah. So she, she gave you room to yeah even make mistakes. I assume. for sure. Um, I did this like interpretive like lyrical dance in my sixth grade talent show to this like ghost track from like Jewel's album as um, one does yes. mm-hmm. and I like and I designed <laughs> I'd like it to see that video and I like uh, I actually dread it it's going to come out someday I know someone has a video of it <laughs> but um, I like did this like hand design costume with this like gigantic like it was like a mo- it was actually very similar to this sweatshirt dress but it was a t-shirt and it had like a glitter 
pin um, question mark on the front and then an upside down question mark on the back, you know, because I just started taking Spanish. It was sixth grade. I was Did like, you make this shirt? Yes, queen. I like, I, I glitter decorated it myself. <laughs> and my mom was like, I remember like after I made the talent show, honey, because everyone tried out for the talent show. It was very major. And um, <laughs> so when I made it, my mom was like, if you do this, like you will never, like this will always be like your kind Mark. of thing. And like, you'll never like escape it really. And she's like, I'm going to be there. Like, I want you to do whatever makes you happy, but I just want you to really be sure. And I was like, fuck you, bitch. I'm doing it. Like, it's going to be fierce. Like, you will love it. I I hate you for like even doubting me. Like, my arabesque is gorgeous in the opening, in the opening position. So how was it? How was it received? It was amazing, honey. It was amazing. I was, I mean... Well, actually, I remember when I actually did see it. It was your on, Little Miss Sunshine moment. It was moment. my Little Miss Sunshine. But when I did see video the first time, I was like, oh, like in my head, I was really giving you so much more Christy Yamaguchi realness. Like the jumps were higher. <laughs> the twirls were tighter. The leaps were much less bent-legged. Um, but in my head, it felt great. It felt great. Now, did your dad show up for this? Yeah, yeah, I think my dad and my stepdad there. I had a very cool, like, co-parenting. Like, my mom and dad, like, they got divorced when I was young, but they really co-parented, like, very much with my stepdad, Steve, who was amazing. Um, so I, I got very lucky with, like, my parents, like, divorced very well. Like, you were t- super lucky, I think, in so many ways in terms of your family situation. What about your siblings? I'm just curious. How oh, they're they- so cute and, and good and, yeah. and fun. Yeah. They're really reproducing a lot and very well. Are they still in Quincy, Illinois? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, are? actually, my one brother just moved to this other town in Illinois. Like, I know the name of it, but for some reason, I feel weird about saying it. I'm like, I don't want everyone to know where my brother lives. I don't know why that's, that's okay. weird. You, you is that weird? You can maintain his privacy. I, do you know what else it is? It's like sometimes like I'll randomly like be like, Kim Kardashian got robbed in Paris. Like, stop telling so much about where your family lives. Like, even though like they don't have fierce jewels, like they've really, it would be like a RAV4 or like a... <laughs> car, you know, um, <laughs> maybe some nice TVs, like some, you know, like a nice flat screen, but not, not, well, actually it's probably fine. He lives in Peoria, so that's gorgeous. Oh, yeah, they're not gonna, oh, no one's going to rob my brother. wonder how Queer Eye is playing in Peoria. Yeah. Um, so obviously Quincy, Illinois. So, but he lives there and then, and the, but I have, I have eight nieces and nephews. Wow. Of a lot of that's nice. children running. Well, I'm really excited for them to all be like old enough for me to be like, you know, put on your shoes and let's go to a movie. I can't deal with kids when they're so little. Like, it it really, really stresses me out. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. So much chaos. I like when kids get a little. I do not like newborns. I really <laughs> like them when they're, like, Put on your socks and shoes. Kids. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. You like I, them when you're, like, 15, 16? <laughs> no, no. I like them when you can— Kind of interact with them, and they're not just sort of blobs. Like yeah. My sister Kiki loves newborns, and I've just she said they're like hot water bottles. But I have just never hot felt that bottles. way. <laughs> anyway, so obviously Quincy, Illinois, you were too big for that town. Clearly, even though you probably have great feelings toward it because of your relatively happy childhood. But then you went to Arizona. Yes. To move on. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I I left Quincy as soon as my little gay feet could take me. And I went to Tucson. <laughs> I went to school there. But, you know, really, I always wanted to do hair. And so I think I really was just kind of doing that to, like, appease the fam. Yeah. Um, You didn't want to go to college? No. But you're so smart. I'm surprised. Well, I, well, I did want to go to college because I wanted to get out of Quincy. But, like, this this was the kind of college student I was. I signed up for astronomy because I thought it was astrology. 
<laughs> and so like I was like, wait, where is the Aries? Where is Speaking the chart? Where is yeah. like Professor McGonagall? Where is like I don't I was just like wanting more of like a Harry Potter experience and in Arizona. Was, mm-hmm. Well, just you know, I just wanted to college to this like magical, cute time. I didn't realize that you had to like work so hard. Like it's hard. College is like literally hard, you know? <laughs> I'm going to put that on, on a pillow. I don't think kids realize how hard it is to, like, self-discipline and stuff. But you stayed there. Only for a semester. I got a 1.7. Oh. It so you was dropped bleak. out after one semester. Yeah, because I only got a 1.7, so I got kicked off the cheer squad. And then I told, I was like, I like to my mother, I was like, oh, I totally did great. I was like, I got a 3.2. It's great. I did great. Just get me a plane ticket. I'll go back. It's great. And then they found out that I got, like, the 1.7, and I wasn't really cheering anymore. And then and I didn't, like, really have to stop going to school because I already, like, signed up for it and stuff. But I just had to, like, start paying for it at that point. And then I went for, like— Two weeks, and I was like, ugh, like, I hate it. And so then I was like, you know, I'll just take a little break, and I'll go back in two weeks, and I'll catch back up. It'll be fine. That never works. Like, I feel like that's a recipe for just not finishing. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. So yep. then you decided Let's, you were going to go full throttle into being a hairdresser. Yep. And I went, I did the FAFSA route. I got the gorgeous grant. I got the, because, like, my family was like, good luck, queen. And I was like, great. So I, um, <laughs> so I, I did, like, the, I got some help, and I did, and I went to school, and I went to the Veda Institute in Minneapolis. And, you know, I really instantly kind of loved it. And you really made made a, a career for yourself, not only in hairdressing, but in podcasting and doing a lot of other stuff, Jonathan, before you even got involved in Queer Eye. Yeah, I was working towards, I didn't know like what I was working towards, but once I did Gay of Thrones, I was like, oh my God, this is so fun. Like, I love creating. I love learning. I love like entertaining people. We should talk about Gay of Thrones for people who don't know. Oh my God. It's kind of a serendipitous story. How yes, it, it is. is. It really is. It is. My um, my very good friend who just uh, released an amazing book called Feminasty. Her name is Erin Gibson. She was the director at, at Funny or Die. And she was a client of the woman who I worked for at my first salon in LA. We became really good friends because I was like doing her haircut because as an assistant, you're not really supposed to like take on clients, but she was never going to pay those prices for color at the time. So like, I just kind of was like, I'll just like come to your house and do it. We'll like, we'll be top secret color friends. So we did that for like four years. And then in 2012, I just moved back to California and she was like, do you watch Game of Thrones? And I was like, honey, like that one little evil baby boy in his sash and he does all this to this person. And, and you then, were doing a whole recap. Yeah, I just like did a whole thing. And then she was like, we should do that for Funny or Die. <laughs> She's and, like, this is a show. Yeah. And so she really, in my chair, like, she created this uh, this concept, sold it to Funny or Die. It was originally supposed to be, like, one episode, but that episode that we did had such a reaction, it, you know, five years later, two Emmy nominations later. Isn't that crazy? How serendipitous is that? It's so, it really is crazy. I also think that, like, I think part of the reason that this even happened to me universally is that, like, I definitely worked really hard, like, once Gay of Thrones happened, like, I don't think I ever, like, turned down a job. I maintained clients or clientels in, like, L.A., Arizona, St. Louis. Like, I literally have worked, like, seven days a week for, like, years and years to— So to, are you still doing hair? Now, so now I don't do hair as much as I did. It was, like, weird. I was really, really trying it. Up until April, I was still doing it, like, three and four days a week because I, I loved my clients and I want to keep doing it. But then I was, like, honey— this opportunity doesn't happen that often. So like, and your my assistant had been with me for two and a half years. So I was like, Melissa, fly. If you don't feel comfortable like with that client, like, or, you know, if not comfortable with that highlight yet, give it to Monique, my business partner who can cut herself out of a, like she can do any haircut anytime, like with her hands tied behind her or hands tied behind her back. She's amazing. So, um, so yeah, so I was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to run with it. So I'm really only doing hair like once a month. Well, now. you know, this is so funny because I was worried. We're doing this on a Saturday morning and I thought, oh gosh, what if Jonathan's tired and low energy? 
<laughs> no, are I wasn't you ever worried about tired that. Or low energy? I'm such a morning person. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I'm such a morning person. Aren't you I, also kind of an evening person? No, after no? like nine thirty or ten, oh. I'm really tired. And rest assured that if you're seeing me after nine thirty or ten, like I am really faking it. I would much rather be home. I really want to be on my couch with my cat. Like I would just soon to be like 70,000 cats. Cause as soon as I get back to Kansas city on Tuesday from the Emmys, like I'm going straight to their humane society and I'm like adopting 17,000 cats oh, as right, many black cats as they have. Yes. And I'm, I'm so sorry. It's okay. But my grandparents literally had a black teacup poodle for 30 years named JP. Cause like when one would die, they would like go get a, like they would get the next one ready. Like, so if one died on Friday, <laughs> they'd have like a new one by like Monday. And I remember no morning period. No, no. And I just, I feel like I'm, I'm right in that. I'm, I'm not far from the block. Like, I need to shove as many black kittens with cute personalities, like, into the bug-sized hole in my gay heart. So I need more kittens. And also, my little hairy Larry is lonely, so I really cannot wait to— My other cat, my surviving baby cat, he literally is, like, pacing the edges of my apartment, like, scream-yowing. Like, he's never done that. He literally knows. It's so weird. That's weird and sad, But as soon too. as I get to, like— 11 new kittens, I'm going to stop being so sad. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, All right. Yeah. Time for a quick break. I'm exhausted, people. <laughs> we'll be right back with Jonathan Van Ness. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most? There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind, so find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. And now back to our conversation with the one and only JVN, Jonathan Van Ness. Let's change the subject okay. because I want to talk about Queer Eye. I mean, okay. and then later I want to talk about your podcast because I think it's was so smart of you to do that too. And all all roads seem to lead to this incredible opportunity that you're you're having right now. First of all, I love the show. Thank you. I really do, and I love all of you for different reasons. And I think the show has so much heart, and it's so seemingly authentic, obviously. I think actually the editing is really fun. It really Kudos is. to whoever does that and kind of 
does those interstitial no, the moments crew is of like, people dancing or yes. doing fun things or, you know, speeding up the clouds. Well, our, I think it's really well done. Our showrunner, one of our executive producers and showrunner, her name is Jennifer Lane. And she she has so many of, like, the qualities that my stepdad had that, like, made me the best version of myself and my relationship with him. And I feel like she does that, too. Like, she really lets us, like, all be ourselves. But she just creates an environment for us to, like— really connect and care and be present and be passionate because she's really passionate. That's and, and, great. And all I'm five glad of us you're are giving so passionate props about. because so often people behind the scenes no, and, and aren't giving credit. No, and our crew is so Thank incredible. Thank you, Gianna. <laughs> <laughs> no, our crew really is, though, like so truly incredible. Like none of the five of us would be able to have the impact that we have without the people that work so hard to like to get us there. And it has been such a village that has created this. And I do really feel like it's it, it is authentic. I feel like what you see on the show is really how it is. I mean, they, there's really never a time where it's like, oh, like we loved that, but can you like be more emotional or like there, that? Nev- we never do that. I, I almost can never think of a time where we shoot something twice. So even if if someone missed something or an angle was wrong or something, it's like they'll just scrap that and or you they'll just, figure it out. Yeah, or you just like move on it. So it really it feels like a very organic experience making the show, which is which I love. And for people who haven't seen the show, they may have heard of the first iteration of this Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Mm-hmm. This new version is just called Queer Eye because it's for everyone. It's not you're not just working on straight guys. What do you think are the big differences between that older version of the show and this one? I mean, I remember in one episode somebody said. The first Queer Eye was about tolerance, and this is about acceptance. I think that that speaks to where the community has come from 2003 through 7 to now, because, like, 2003 to 7 was, like, the age of DOMA. It was, like, um, Defense and Marriage Act. It was very much like, you know, I like to be in the same room with you. I just don't agree with your uh, lifestyle. Like, you should maybe have all the rights as I do as a hetero person in a a married relationship, but maybe not all the same ones. And you definitely shouldn't call it marriage because she's, like, a sacred sanctimony. So, like, that was the age that we were in then. It was, like, all majority support for banning gay marriage at that time. Yeah, and so that was about, like, that's where that came from. And and now I think that the community is much more like, you will see me as a father. You will see me as a husband. You will, like, it's just there. It's like, go fuck your tolerance because, like, I will be here all the way. That isn't as gentle as it sounds, you know, the tolerance versus acceptance, but that's how I imagine it. It's, you have to see me as a whole person now. And I think that the five original you know, cast members of Queer Eye, like, had all of those same beautiful, multifaceted dimensions to their, to themselves. And it's nothing that they weren't able to bring to the table. I'm sure that they did bring it to the table. But a Bravo network in 2003 through 7 is very different from, like, the freedom that Netflix in 2018 is going to give you. Yeah. And, and also, you know, crafting a show for an American audience of 2003 through 7 to an international audience of, like, 110 countries with 190 members. It Maybe is, it was back then more of a curiosity, too, you know? And— We're more comfortable and now. Yes, I think People so, too. are more comfortable And now. I actually think your gayness, while it's a part of the show, it in a way, it's— it's really not about five gay guys. It's about five guys. Yeah. Bobby says that, and I think it's really so true. Because to me, the show is so much more about, like, human connection. And, it is. And also, like, there's been so many times where I've learned stuff from people. Like, lots of stuff. Because also, I think the audiences have come in, have come so much farther since 2003 to 7 from now. Like, audiences, like— especially, like, in my age box, you know, of, like, 24 to, like, 35, like, no one— is going to buy an expert shoving down something in their throat that, like, they know to not be authentic. You know what I mean? let's talk about that because I just wondered if in some of these very small conservative towns, if people don't give you all a little bit of a hard time or if there's not 
a resistance Here's to the thing. you descending on their For town. me personally, because of what I mentioned earlier, like I come from a place where like I'm not used to walking fi- – like to this day, if someone says fag, I turn my head. Like I think – like I'm like someone's coming up behind me, someone's talking to me. Like I I still will answer to that. So like even if someone like does like throw us a bunch of shade or is like being crazy or hard to work with, like I am so used to it. It doesn't move a hair on my head. Like, but does that ever happen? I mean, it struck me. But also, no. Like, none of the heroes and none of the people in their families. Like, I like that you call them heroes. Yeah, well, because I think that that, I mean, I didn't coin that phrase. And at first, I think, and I think that a lot of people are like, like, when you say that, like, an eyebrow, it's like, why? But I think it's like, it kind of just speaks to the brand of the show, which is like, people are all heroes. Like, we do heroic stuff every day. Like, the fact that, like, we are, like, up out of bed with our clothes on and, like, just, like, putting one foot in front of the other, like, is heroic for what so many people have gone through go through, have been through on a daily basis. Like, even just, like, having lost my cat, like, that is so hard. Like, people go through so much really devastating stuff. And, I mean, losing parents, losing lovers, like, you know, like, that German cyclist, like, like just who, like, she was, like, she won gold in London, she won gold in Rio, and she, like, severed her back in a training accident, like, two days ago. And she's, like, now my arms are my legs. And she's, like, people are so heroic, like, all the time. So I think, why not call people heroes? Like, why not celebrate the things that you think that you're supposed to pull up your bootstraps and just like ho hum through life? Like, why not celebrate like what we've been? One through? person there- I really, one person I loved is Tom, who was in the first episode because he was so open, which I really, really appreciate. Really open, you know, and and willing to have this dialogue. And I think that is what speaks to the heart and soul of this show. As I said, I think the gayness kind of falls away. But what I think gets front and center is bridging these cultural divides and these these tribalistic tendencies yes. that we have. And really, in, in a way that's not so hitting you over the head or luxury or preachy, just kind of getting this kind of dialogue out there, whether it's Bobby talking about growing up in an evangelical church or Tom being honest about how he felt about homosexuality. You know, those are the moments that really strike me, and I think, wow, this is really achieving something. You don't see many instances when people like the five of you are talking to people like Tom or the guy with six kids with the house that was just such a nightmare, with, but with a darling wife yeah. who loved her husband so much. Anyway, I think— to me, that is the secret sauce of the show. Or the African American lady at the beginning I'm of season two, obsessed with Tammy. Who, yeah, Miss Tammy. Ugh. And and this was just alluded to a little bit in that episode that she was very hostile toward her gay son at first, and that was perhaps what helped drive him out of that town. And then he came back, and they reconciled. And so there is a little more subtlety and um, awareness of people's flaws and prejudices and in Skyler, the show. And Skylar, you know, Tan was very open mm. about feeling slightly ignorant about the trans community. And he is such a fearless soldier and advocate and just strong, amazing man, Skylar. I love him so much. And I love Mama Tammy so much. And in, in fact, Gay Georgia is like going through this like Corey Rock thing right now because like this big rock company wants to build a Corey and Gay Georgia. And they have this issue and I noticed this a lot in Atlanta, actually, and I'm really ho- hoping that Stacey Abrams wins uh, governorship there and can, you know, kind of correct this. And I think that a lot of states that have one large city, like, you know, whether it's Chicago and Illinois or Atlanta and Georgia or New York City and New York, those states have so much adject poverty and lack of essential, normal, basic materials because of the way that state legislatures are set up to, like, really kind of, like, over-provide for the bigger population centers. And I mean— This feels like JVN's listening tour 
for a presidential bid? Well, well, I mean, I mean, I never would, I never ever in a million years would go into politics, but Why? I do. I'm more of a, I'm more of a recapper. I'm more of a, con- I have too many skeletons, honey. Um, <laughs> Don't you know we all? What's interesting, by the way, per the point you mentioned, in these small towns and rural areas, people vote overwhelmingly for less government for conservatives. Yeah, and they do it mainly because of cultural issues, not economic ones. Or if they have an economic bent, they believe that the government just always going to fail them. And do you think that the show puts sort of too positive a gloss on people's real views on these social issues? I mean, one of the things that really led to the election of Donald Trump was just overwhelming vote share in small towns and rural areas, largely driven by discomfort with the way America is changing. Well, I don't know if people that voted for Donald Trump were more driven to vote for him because of the way that America is changing versus the overwhelmingly misogynistic sexist coverage that Hillary Clinton endured for the last 29 years, like, of my whole life. Like, she's in so much positive things that were, like, so vehemently covered by the media and, like, really so—she was so demonized. And I also noticed that in Kansas City, like— the way that female politicians are demonized and covered, not only by the media, but also their political opponents, is very starkly contrasted by when two men run against each other. What men will bring up against women is much deeper and much more sinister and much more cutting than what men bring up against men. So, so yeah, I, I don't think that, that the show put too much gloss. And I think that at some point when tribalistic tendencies have come so much into play and is really causing such a divide in this country, at some point you have to have an entry point into a conversation to bridge those divides. And when CNN and Fox News is so polarized and is really writing so much for headline and for clickbait and not about really educating people or really trying to teach people to critically think, that's an issue. Uh, so I think that, yeah, I, I don't think that, qu- that Queer I put too much of a glossy thing on. And also, I think it's important to remember that a lot of the people that voted for Trump, like, I think that Hillary was a little bit correct. And some of them are deplorable in the sense that they're racist, sexist, misogynist, xenophobic. There's also a lot of really good people like Tom, who I would assume would vote for Trump, that aren't misogynistic, aren't sexist, aren't xenophobic, are actually good people who have really been left behind and don't have a way to critically think or figure out what their new role in this new technology is. You know, because coal mines are closing and now it's more tech. And and these people have legitimate needs and concerns and they don't know how, they literally don't know. And they've completely lost faith, I think. Completely lost faith. And people have, and and also people have given up on them because in the media and in the Republican Party, Like, when you see these ads, you would think that, like, Claire McCaskill is ushering in, like, ISIS into the country to, like, take the guns from everyone. I mean, it is so fear-mongery and so crazy and just so far out of base of, like, what is really going on. I mean, Claire McCaskill has been a really good senator for the state of Missouri. She's worked really hard for people in rural communities. She's worked really hard for disadvantaged people. And the way that she's portrayed in these in political ads, I've really noticed in Kansas City, it's crazy. The extremes, I think, have taken over, you know. And I think it's also dangerous to generalize about Trump voters in the first place. I I think Jonathan makes a really good point. You cannot say this whole swath of people voted for him because of X. No, absolutely not. And some of them do suck. Like like the deplorable thing, like there was a piece of that that was true. But anytime you're making like huge, gigantic blatant statements, I do think that it's like, like a little bit of an ish, but also to the point of like, did Queer Eye put too glossy of a cast on conservative people in rural areas? 
I don't think so. No, because what are you going to do? Like have the five of us come to someone who's like extremely homophobic and ex- like, and be like, have us be in like unsafe situation. Like you're obviously not going to have us like make over someone who's like unsafe. Having for us said to be that, on. do you think they put on their best face and that some of it belied some of the undercurrents of racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia? Maybe with people who were like in locales where we were like like the one with Joe Galwa where we were doing that like stand-up thing at that like rotary club sort of place like when we were actually there like I didn't realize like how crazily people were looking at me like it didn't occur to me at all like I there was one but guy when who you was, watched the episode yeah then I was like holy shit like that guy was really being an asshole and there was there was a lot of stuff going on but it didn't I mean because like I said it like goes over my head I, like I'm too busy being fabulous to notice um, <laughs> but I but that so should I be did, the title of your book I like <laughs> that I every time you say something like that I'm like I'm putting that on a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um you know and also I think that most people most people are are good at heart. I think most people are. I do think that media today is dividing people because you do have an alternative universe depending on where you're getting your news and information. Totally. And and then it just feeds your sort of worst impulses to to you know, as as President Obama would say, manufactured outrage on yes, both sides. Yes, yes. I think Fox and CNN are the biggest offenders. Because when I watch CNN— What about MSNBC? Don't watch it, so I don't know. <laughs> Sorry about it. Rachel, I love your I haircut. W- I just never had that channel. Don't care. Um, but <laughs> as far as CNN and Fox, it's over and over and over and over and over. It's the exact same thing. And I'm like, with all of your money and all of your resources, like, can you not go to Yemen? What about the cholera outbreak? 300,000 people— this is the problem, Jonathan. When they start covering those things, ratings go down because people want to watch the reality show. And it's far more expensive to cover. I mean, so you get better but ratings can't you give me mi- But can I get moments? Can't we diversify a little bit? Like, can't we move a couple doors down? It was interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine who works at MSNBC, and I said, oh, gosh, there must have been some relief about— about the Thai rescue, because at least it was a moment to depart from Trump 24-7. And she said, we didn't even cover that. So I think it's become so just political-centric. But at some point, like, doesn't someone need to be the bigger person and take the hit and see if people actually choose a better source? It's all about the money. But wouldn't that be interesting, though, if someone could— Take, like, give me, like, a Reuters or an NPR moment, but in a capitalized network and see if that works. No one's ever tried. Like, I think probably they have. Dateline kind of was, like, a moment. Because I have to say, Soledad O'Brien's coverage of that Jonestown documentary in, like, 2011, I still think about it. So good. So, I mean, I do think that uh, Fox, I wouldn't know enough about to say this. And I actually would, I think I could also go out on a limb enough to say that it is not, they never do good stuff. But CNN does do good stuff sometimes. I mean, they do do good investigative journalism sometimes. I do feel like that Soledad special, she brings the heat with CNN. I love that. Also, Sanjay Gupta, we love him. But I do think just the way that it's laid out, I think that the whole like ratings machine and how that relates to news and what that's doing to our country, it's like, if you, if if CNN's going to sit and call Donald Trump like not fit for presidency and not, and you know, not patriotic, it's like, what is, because like my set had always said, if you're pointing at someone, calling them something, like you got three fingers pointing back at you. So I think that we all have a hand in this and we all could make this a little bit cuter. Can we talk about this medium for a second? As yes. Cuter. Cable news. Love podcasting. podcasting. So you do another podcast in mm-hmm. addition to Gay of Thrones. Yes. Called Getting Curious. Yes. 
Well, Game of Thrones is a web series. That's a web series. People cannot, but also, no. Sorry, okay, let me do that. No shade to you, though, honey. People do that all the time. People, like, don't know what the things are. A web series is like a video on the internet that's a series of videos. I'm sorry. And then a podcast (laughs) is when we're here with these gorgeous microphones in our face. Okay. No, but it's like, but lots of people do. But also, tomato, tomato. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about how you got into podcasting, what you think of the medium, and sort of what the point of your show is. So, I was inspired by Aaron Gibson and Brian Safi because they have another amazing podcast called Throwing Shade. That was the first podcast that I ever listened to, and I was like, fun. I got lucky enough to assist for um, this photo shoot that Annie Leibovitz did and like a long time ago with an old boss of mine. And she, what I learned from her that was so interesting, because when you think of like photography and fashion and print, it's a very curated, very produced world. Her whole phase that she was at least going through then was that like if anything even felt like it was bordering on too produced or just too like forced, she was like, oh, I hate it. Get away from me. Like hated it. Like that hair is too done. That shirt it's too fucking done. Like, it's all too done. She hated that. Like, it just had to be very, like, raw and real. And I loved that about this her. So Annie? Yeah. Because that's so unusual if you look at her Vanity Fair work. And that phase, though, that she was going through, like, this, like, 2011 phase, it just needed – and even if it does turn out looking really produced, like, she, she needed the set to feel, like, just very, like, undone. Like, having been there, it made sense. I guess as someone who, like, wasn't on the set, I can see how that wouldn't make sense. But the point is, is that in getting curious when I started doing that, I was like, I don't want any sort of, like – reoccurring segment. I don't want any sort of like bells and whistles. I just want like the same song to start every time. And then me and the same, like me and an expert to talk 30 minutes, sometimes more because I can't stop talking to learn about something. And I just like, didn't want anything like to produce. I just wanted like a natural little combo. Tell me about some of the episodes. I know you did one on the Middle East, for example. Yeah, I've done two on the Middle East with the uh, professor of Islamic history from UCLA. His name is Dr. James Galvin. I love him so much. He's so smart. He, um, He's lived he broke like, it oh, down. Yeah, he broke it down. And he continues to break it down. He's someone who I will definitely have back because he has such a wealth of knowledge. And 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 I think that Middle East politics and Middle East history is so confusing for like a gay kid from Quincy, Illinois. Like, how do you even break all that down? So uh, I've done one on like psychobiological approach to couples therapy, which is short for PACT, which is invented by Stan Tatkin. So I interviewed him. He's oh my incredible. God, you're like making up for dropping out of college. I am. But it's, but but here's the thing. I can't fake interest in something I'm not interested in. So you take a topic that— that you're really interested in and you figure out who the right person to talk to is uh-huh. about that and you just talk to them. Yeah. And you try to learn as much as you possibly yeah. can. And, and before own- it was a success, I used to have to like cold email like 20 and 30 professors of like bees. Anything. Yeah. Like to and, like <laughs> entomologists. To get, to, or is yes, it yes, yes, entomologists. Yes, that's what it is. It's fun now because it's like it's easier to produce now because now people know what it is, which is fun. Well, let's talk before we go about Brian because oh, no. um, I thought I'm gonna ask Jonathan to Kind of, if he had to make over Brian, what would There's he so do? There's so much. Where would he even begin? Honestly, I think you are such a handsome boy. You have very beautiful skin. You got oh. great hair. I love your outfit. I thought you looked great today. Really? Wow. You yeah. wouldn't, like, do anything really with his hair? Put some product in it? Maybe. Or yeah, kind maybe of, it's a little, I mean, put a little so pomade in her to, like, chunk Jonathan. it up a little bit. I also am curious if you had, like, a little bit more stubble. Like, I wonder if you had, like, a little bit more, like, bad boy stubble. Like, I wonder a what his story is. more stubble. Well, I could, I could grow it out for a couple like, of days. Like, I feel like if you had, like, a few more days, like, you'd be serving, like, a little bit of, like, David Muir, like, realness. You know what I mean? Like, I'd have to work out for about two years. I mean, I would be curious to see what you looked like if you were just, like, going to Whole Foods. Like, this what do you wear if you're just, like, going to the grocery store? Much. This yeah. Is pretty much. Yeah. Brian, in that case, I would say that you need like to, like, this. I want you to get, if, if I could, not to say the name of my podcast in sentence, but I would love to see you getting curious about, like, what's your athleisure look? What's your, like, comfy like casual look? shirt? What if you ever went to go play tennis or something? What would you wear? I, I would actually that. like Jonathan to take a crack at my husband, John. <sighs> he definitely could use a little fashion help. But I have to ask you about your, your queer eye brethren. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. 
I think a lot of people are fascinated by the whole crew. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about Bobby. Okay. Bobby does more work than anyone, let's face it. He does so much work, but he also <laughs> has a team quintuple the size of anyone's. Like, oh. I don't have— like, I don't have an assistant. I, I have, this year, I, for the first time, have someone to help me because I'm doing, like, much larger uh, transformations this time around. Um, I'm getting much more into, like, color and stuff. But Bobby does do so much work. He And he is incredibly passionate and, co- and incredibly committed. But again, I really like, like him. No, I love him. He is, when we got cast, when I first met him, he was someone who, like, just, we immediately were really close. He knows every single, like, dark secret about me. Like, like he... Like, he knows everything about me. He's, like, one of the most trustworthy people I know. I love him. He's he's so funny. He's really, really genuine. He's a really, really hard worker. Like, I absolutely adore him. And his background is sort of similar to yeah. yours. Well, well, our biggest beef is that Illinois people make fun of Missourians for driving, and Missourians make fun of, well, actually, really what it is is Missourians get made fun of by Illinoisans for the driving, and then Kansas people also make fun of Missourian people for their driving because everyone knows that universally Missourians cannot drive. <laughs> and um, and that's just for me coming from a border town. Like that's just you know, there's no shade there. It's just why can't Missourians drive? because they don't have a driver's ed program. Like your parents teach you how to drive. Seriously? Yes. All right, let's talk about it. It's tan. a thing. Obsessed let's talk with Karamo, obsessed with Tan. Tan, I love so much. Um, I like want to like. Should eat. we introduce what these people do for those oh, who tan don't is, know? Oh, Tan fashion. is the clothing fashion guy. Bobby is the home yes. makeover. Tan and I's like main goal in each other's life is like his goal in my life is to teach me boundaries, and my goal in his life is to take them all away. So, you know, <laughs> there's always like that gorgeous friendship. Uh, I love his hair. I love his hair so much. Very particular about his hair. <laughs> But I love him so much about it. Is that a natural gray or does he? Yes, yes. queen. You cannot buy that color in a box. I think honey. it's really no, pretty. So I natural. wish my hair would so look like stunning. that. I'd like so to beautiful. go gray. Should I? It, well, no. my mom and I grew hers out. And if you ever wanted to, because you're so light now, it wouldn't be. Because like my mom and I grew out her color. It's the best decision we ever made. She looks amazing. Like, she looks amazing with her striking. I'm just afraid hair. mine's going to be sort of nasty, you know, salt and pepper. Every time I mention it, all my friends say, no, you'll look too old. I think silver hair is stunning. And I think that it's very like underrated. And can you make it like look? Whiter if it doesn't come. Yeah, in you can do a little gloss. Color. You can do like a semi-permanent gloss that's got like a violet base to like counteract any yellow in it to like brighten it up as much as possible. All right. Well, we'll discuss. Yeah, later. but I also love your color the way it is. She's beautiful. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about yes. Anthony. Love Anthony. Such a hard worker. A really, really just true. He's got friend. a rock and bod. Solid person. Really rock and bod. Um, <laughs> Which one is Anthony? Anthony does cook, the food. Cook, oh, yeah, the food. Wine, yeah. He's so funny. Like I'm like give Anthony more to do than just teach a guy how to make guacamole. But you know what? It's he gets a lot of flack for that, but I think that it's like when you think about you know his vertical and my vertical. Like, am I going to come in on a guy who's never used sunscreen before and give him like a light contour beat? Like, am I going to show him how to contour his face and how to, you know, get like no? Like, you have to meet people Baby where steps. they're at. I agree. So yeah, I think that he got a lot of undue flack for that. I mean, a lot of these like Tom, the most Tom. Had Did he ever, get a lot of flack for that? By yes, the way? like in the press, he got a lot of flack for um, his cooking skills and like. Tom literally was eating Cheetos and Mountain Dew margaritas every day for like a year. So like getting him to make guacamole was Le Cordon Bleu. See, teaching him how to cut an avocado was like, that was epic for him. Yeah, I think it's probably big city slickers kind of condescension. Yeah, like, uh, Finally, Karamo. Yes. Um, He's so handsome. Yeah, so handsome and really so empathetic and so smart and um, really, really caring and just, you know, a really good guy. Like, I cannot say enough good words about him. I love them. You guys have all made a big mark for each of your careers. Do you guys get competitive? 
Really? No. I think I think all of us really kind of operate by like that law of abundance versus the law of scarcity. I don't think that like when any of us gets like something good that happens to us, I don't feel like any of the rest of us feel like that takes away an opportunity for the rest of us. So I really feel like we do operate like from a law of abundance space. And I, I it doesn't feel jealous at all. I, we are so happy for each other. And like really, I mean, like they come to a lot of my stand up shows. They post my like we post each other's stuff. Like we're all really supportive and, and really love each other. How is your stand up career going? Oh my God, it's been so fun. I, I, I I was when I first started doing it, I, I was like kind of coasting by on like, oh my god, everyone loves you so much from the show. And you're like a new kid on the block, so you can kind of almost just like get up here in heels and dance around, and everyone will think it's funny. <laughs> Lately, I'm more like, oh my god, like you got like this is an art, this is a craft. I gotta like get it together. I'm like, so I'm really like working on my act. I'm really, it's fun. What are you it's, performing in clubs? And- mm, yeah, like clubs, stand up places, and it's just fun. Like I, it's a whole new medium. It's a whole new art. I feel like I haven't been this passionate about learning about something since like I started doing hair. So it's really, it's like a whole new medium for me to get into. And kind how of are you learning about it? Are you taking trial a master error, class? Honey. No trial. <laughs> error. Um, I just, I'm getting up. I, I work a lot with my friend Kyle, who is coming on the tour with me, the Hotels.com tour, and she'll come to all of my, uh, all the comedy shows, and we're just spitballing a lot with each other and working a lot with each other. It's just, it's really fun. And talking about your life and your life experiences. Yeah, is I'm that more of a storyteller doing? than a one joke than yeah. a one-liner person, but I work in some good one-liners throughout, but those are always pretty meta. Like, I don't really plan those ones out Well, too like much. you, like you have today. Yeah. Well, I, I'm so happy for your success. Thank you so much. And for thank you so much for doing this. Thank you really so nice to meet you. So nice to Katie's still so a little upset that you don't want to make me over, but that's <laughs> hey, honey, okay. you brought the heat today. You look great. Not your fault. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank Bye. you, Jonathan. Yes. By the way, before we go, a quick footnote. The very next day after we interviewed Jonathan Van Ness, Queer Eye took home three Emmys. So congratulations, JVN, and to the entire Queer Eye team, well done. That wraps up our show for today, folks. Thanks this week to Cody Ziegler in our L.A. studio who helped us out with this recording. And on a Saturday morning, I might add, thank you, Cody. Our usual thanks to our producer, Gianna Palmer, our associate producer, Nora Ritchie, and our engineer, Jared O'Connell, who mixed this episode. Thanks also to Katie's amazing, indefatigable assistant, (laughs) Beth DeMoz. And a warm welcome to Julia Lewis. Well, I always want to say Julia Lewis (laughs) Dreyfus. Julia Lewis, who is our great new digital content manager at Katie Couric Media. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. Katie Couric and I are the show's executive producers. Find me on Twitter at GoldsmithB. And Katie, meanwhile, is all over the social medias under the name Katie Couric. And folks, a heads up, next week's show and the one after will be slightly different. We're going to be trying out a documentary format for the first time to mark the 10-year anniversary of my interviews with then-Vice Presidential Candidate Sarah Palin. And we should mention, Brian, you were a really important producer during the course of those interviews. Yeah, you've been putting up with me for a very long time. (laughs) I can't believe it was 10 years ago. Anyway, for this two-part audio doc, you and I spoke with many of the key players from the 2008 campaign. Our goal with this series is to reconstruct what happened in front of the camera and behind the scenes. Right. All the palace intrigue that was going on at CBS News at the time. Well, not all of it. But we really wanted to explore also, Brian, whether Sarah Palin's brand of politics, sort of firebrand brand of politics, helped pave the way for the politics of Donald Trump. Again, this one will be a two-parter, so look out for it next week and the week after. We'll talk to you then. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Who do you talk to about how you're feeling? Your friends, your family? How about your neighbors? 
Fred Rogers encouraged us to pay attention to how we're feeling, to how other people are feeling too. He believed that talking about our feelings would help us make sense of the world. I'm Carvel Wallace. And I don't know about you, but I'm having trouble making sense of the world these days. Join me for Finding Fred, a new podcast about the lessons of Fred Rogers. Check out Finding Fred on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.